Hey, thank you for joining us here on the Fearless Paranoia Podcast, where we seek to demystify the complex world of cybersecurity. I'm Brian, the cybersecurity attorney. And I'm Ryan. I'm a cybersecurity architect. And today we're going to talk about a specific application of something that we first discussed last March. We did a three-part episode on generative AI and large language models. We're primarily at that point in time talking about ChatGPT, but it can apply to other text-based generative AI systems like BARD. It can take, it can apply to image-based generative AI like the Stable Diffusion, any of the systems that those use, but really anything that uses a large model system and machine learning to be able to come up with something that's better than the standard computer output. Well, today what we're going to talk about is how that generative AI system, the system that's designed to make a computer speak more like a human and act more like a human and create images that are more like lifelike and more realistic, can be used to swindle you. We're essentially talking about how spear phishing can become considerably more dangerous, specifically by using things like chat GPT to create them. Ryan, talk to us a little bit about how spear phishing exists or existed in the wild, so to speak, prior to the implementation of these generative AI systems and what made them good for what they were meant for and and what their weaknesses were. Sure. So just to underpin that again really quick, or at least to preface it, we want to say So phishing and spear phishing, the big thing here, since we're going to talk more about spear phishing, phishing is a pretty general term used to kind of say we're going to try and in most cases kind of blast an attack out and see who's going to bite. It's more like casting a net in the water to try and fish. Spear phishing is more identified as to what it indicates. It's going after an individual target, right? So you're now shooting to try and get one specific targeted person to be compromised or to be, you know, susceptible to this attack. So one of the main goals in spear phishing is making it something that is going to be likely to be intriguing or enticing to that person that you're looking for. So you really kind of need to play to the person in order to be successful in spear phishing. So when you have your target, one of the things that's always kept us safe in the past with phishing attacks or spear phishing has been a lot of these threat actors come from different regions of the world and there's been language barrier issues. That's something that has been one of the easiest ways to identify phishing emails. It was always look at the bad grammar, look at the bad spelling, look at the lack of punctuation. This obviously isn't, uh, you know, a native speaker, whatever it is. That was a really easy way for humans to kind of define that. But that language barrier was the only thing preventing those threat actors from being more effective at that time. And fortunately for most of us... Well, maybe not even necessarily more effective, but at the very least, it was a giant red flag. It Sure, it was. And again, I think that had that red flag not been there, I think that they would have seen immensely greater interaction with with those yeah, those phishing emails. So I mean, again, it was a matter of, uh, of efficacy. I think that that language barrier was really something that held them back for well over a decade, maybe even a couple decades at this point. Chat GPT, generative AI, absolutely changes the game because it removes that hurdle entirely. They don't even need to go, you know, uh, one thing we didn't see until just recently, and this actually comes out of our last episode, part of the MGM hack, and I'm surprised I didn't mention this in here. One of the things that was put together just recently about that was that as part of their social engineering attacks, they think it was a Russian primary group behind it, but reached out to English speakers who were also willing to be threat actor-ish to use them to help navigate the phishing and spear phishing attacks because of the fact that if you take a native speaker, it makes it a lot easier to tailor something that's going to be effective. I'm surprised that didn't get used a lot more in recent years, but now we don't even need to do that. Now they can skip that hurdle entirely because now you don't need to come and 
pay a portion of your proceeds to some English speaker to help you craft your, your spear phishing messages. Now you can just go to generative AI and they can put together grammatically correct, mechanically correct, really well-written emails, verbiage, whatever dialogue with this end user. And you can even go so far as to looking up things like, let's go to LinkedIn and like, let's say, uh, I'm going to take John Doe, right? He's a good buddy of mine. I go to his LinkedIn real quick and I see that he's a member of like a youth basketball association. He's also a member of a curling club. He's a member of a model rocket company or a model rocket association and a few other things like that. Well, you can take all those things, throw all that stuff in along with some generic verbiage of like, how do I get a person who's interested in these things to want to interact with said link? The more information you feed in, generative AI will just flat out start to piece this puzzle together for you. It'll start to look at different creative writing mechanisms that it's seen, part of large language model, and start to really craft something that is manipulative, persuasive, that is uh, trying to accomplish the goal of the request because, I mean, that's that's what the AI is trying to do, right? It's trying to provide the desired output uh, for the inputs here. And in this case here, the input is all the stuff that helps us identify this person with the output being, how do we manipulate this person? And now you've got a model to where you don't need to put together multiple minds to figure out how to do this or have one really well-experienced mind piecing together the plan, you've got a tool that's reaching out to all the different sources that are available out there on the connected net and learning from all of those things at the same time and providing you uh, usually a really suitable answer that gets you to that target quickly. So considering we can do basic stuff like that nowadays, again, finding somebody on LinkedIn and using that to call a help desk is one thing. Setting up automation to be able to to go through LinkedIn, let's say take like a credential spray. You have a targeted username password list that you could use for credential stuffing. Well, you could do something as simple and rudimentary as credential stuffing, but what if you take that whole list and then say, hey, chat GPT, go through this list, grab all of these usernames, all these emails, associate these to the actual user's name, go to LinkedIn, scrape their profile, and give me an aggregated list of things that this user is interested in and piece all that together for me. And then after the next step, you could say, okay, now that we've aggregated all this information. Can you please go through this list? Assume that the usernames are all email addresses. Can you send an email to all these emails individually crafted per person, tailored based on the different things they want with a link that will lead them back to this malware site that I've created? You don't have to word it fully like that to them, but that's effectively the pattern that you can follow to really start exploiting this. And now you've taken the legwork out. Of, you, you've let the attacker be lazy again because now the AI is doing all of that legwork. Well, and let me add one other possibility. On top of all of that, you enter copy and paste and you've got access to that one employee's email credentials. So you have access to that e that one person's sent email folder. You'd copy the text out of 30 emails and feed them into chat GPT and now say, write me an email in the tone of this. And yep. it will read through the tone of those emails. And so you'll you'll even get, you know, you were, you were talking before about identifying these emails based on the grammatical errors and based on the lack of punctuation and based on the imprecise use of adjectives and terms. Like one of my favorite things about the English language is that when you're using adjectives, there's, there's like a 13 type order. You have to, when you're describing things, you have to put those adjectives in that order and it's everything from like color, size, whatever it might be. And so what you're alluding to here is using AI to tailor people's emails to be more like them 
them to be more right. convincing that they are them. Exactly. So now you're not looking for the wrong grammatical errors and punctuation mistakes. Now you're looking for the right ones. Sure. So now take that one step further, right? So now you can take that information. You can send that from an external account, right? And it's going to come in. It's going to get externally flagged by most systems. It'll show that it came from an external source. Same if you reach in from like Teams or something. Now let's say you compromise this actual user's account inside their business and can write emails that damn well look like they are coming from this person or sending teams messages or something that look very much like the way that this person would send a message. Hey brother, how you doing today? Can you go ahead and send me a copy of that financial statement? I haven't seen it come through. Maybe it got sent to my junk. Something that simple. And all of a sudden, boop, somebody sends them a copy of the company's financial statement over teams or something. That's simple. And when you remember that a lot of these things, you can say that all of these companies are going to do everything they can to limit the use of their generative AI tools by hackers. It's not as though you type in, I'm looking for the best ransom note or like write a ransom note to someone for to return their child in exchange for $50,000 cash. No, what you're doing is you're all you're trying to do is you're trying to get the user to perform an action that you want them to perform. So you write say draft an email about bringing, you know, food to a Sunday potluck lunch and say, you know, click here for the list of people who have already signed up and what they've signed up for. And then if you really want to add to that, you also have it create a list where people have already put stuff in. And so when you click on it, even though it's a malicious link and you're downloading horrible things to your computer, it still takes you to the thing you thought you were going to see. And so you're mm -hmm. none the wiser until horrible things happen. If, if I was going to create like a phishing site for something like wellsfargo.com or something, and I make the site look exactly like wellsfargo.com, but it's like W-E-1-L-S-F-A-R-G-O.com or something like that, right? So it's like a mass domain. But if I make it look exactly the same, I send a person a link, I get them there and I get them to miss the fact that the URL is different. If they punch in their information in there, I still damn well want to send that stuff through to Wells Fargo and then redirect them to the legitimate Wells Fargo site for two main reasons. First of all, you get them to the Wells Fargo site, you get them away from your mass domain really quickly, and uh, then they actually continue their user experience and the user now has no idea if they get to that next stage because now they're back on the legitimate site, which means that they, they're none the wiser. Yep, they have no uh, reason to question it. If, if all of a sudden they hit an error of some sort because it just logged into a database and then had nowhere to dump them, now the user's suspicious. Now they can do stuff like change their password and now your credential set is bad. It's garbage. And so if you pass them through, that's a huge one because it carries on the ruse. And and at the same time, it documents that password. So now they know that that password is still good for them. They think it's still secure. And so they have no reason to want to change it. So now you guys have shared use over their account, assuming they don't have like a multi-factor authentication or something else on there that would prevent that kind of base access. But at the very least, you have at least convinced them that they need to do certain things. Even if they can't get into your account, they have all the other information that they want about you, which means that they can probably trick you into doing something else that would give them access that's beneficial in some way. Sure. Absolutely. Well, and if you're able to fall for it for like Wells Fargo, what's to say you're not going to fall for it for all the other accounts that you've got too? So if they can find out where else this person has accounts, all they have to do now is just go keep crafting new bad pages and just keep <laughs> sending links to this user and the user likely will just keep clicking on it, passing in their credentials and then going on about their day. You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. We're here to help make the complex language of cybersecurity understandable. So if there are topics or issues that you'd like Ryan and I to break down in an episode, send us an email at info at fearlessparanoia.com or reach out to us on Facebook or LinkedIn. For more information about today's episode, be sure to check out fearlessparanoia.com where you'll find a full transcript as well as links to helpful resources and any research and reports discussed during the episode. While you're there, check out our other posts and podcasts as well as additional helpful resources for learning about cybersecurity. Now back to the show.
One of the big things that we've talked about a lot on this podcast is how education is absolutely critical. And one of the episodes that I'm looking forward to coming up is we're essentially going to podcast, broadcast a tabletop exercise as a demonstration of some of the ways where you can keep training interesting. But some interesting numbers that have come out recently saying that the percentage of small businesses who become the targets of ransomware gangs especially has skyrocketed over the past two years. And we were talking about this earlier before we started recording that in my mind, something like generative AI creating a more convincing spear phishing email, it's going to have much greater success expanding its successful spear fished emails to small businesses. Now, it's going to have success everywhere. Let's be perfectly honest. No matter how big your company is, if someone is able to send much better phrased and much more natural sounding spear phishing emails, they're going to be more successful. But I do fear that small businesses without the security infrastructure in place are simply going to see a much more significant growth in successful spear phishing attacks out of this. What steps can we really take to protect ourselves from emails that look like the legit ones we've been so used to for so long saying, oh, this can't be a hacker? So I think it goes back to, again, some of the real basics around the concepts of email security security and workstation security. First of all, people will click on things. So if you run even a small business, you need to have at least basic level security in place. Get some sort of strong AV tool in place. So you're getting at least some of the basic detections because even if you don't get the users to stop clicking on all the links, if you can block some of the things that occur right afterwards, you're going to do yourself a lot of favors. And that's something that usually is pretty easy to do because you're not involving the human component to do that. You're doing that at the system level. Beyond protecting the system with real basic things like email security systems that look at links and try to like scan links and look for bad malicious things before you get through their uh, systems like Proofpoint, Mimecast, things like that, or uh, Microsoft has safe links, safe attachments, those type of systems. If you're not into those bigger systems and able to get a hold of those, then then it really comes down to limiting access to what your users can do on the workstation. If you pull local admin off, that helps reduce a lot of the foothold that you can gain through links because if the user can't run stuff at system level easily, it makes it a lot harder for malware to start on the system or to pull credentials or something in the system. If the user is an admin on the system, then you have a lot of risk sitting with your user and it comes down to training. Users really, really have to understand the nature of these things. And training can't be basic stuff just like, I'm going to send out a phishing email and if I catch you and you click on the link, then you have to go watch these videos and click this box that you followed these videos because the same kind of person who is willing to click on a link that they don't understand without scrutinizing it is the same kind of person that's going to let all those videos go in one ear and out the other and is going to click on the next link the next time it comes back. It's the concept of those repeat offenders. So you need to find a way to really make that information much more prevalent to them or you need to find a way to make it easier for them to consume, which is why there'll be at some point we'll do an episode in the future on gamifying cybersecurity education, Mm -hmm. because to me, I think that's going to help a lot, especially coming out of the video game generation, like a lot of us in our 20s, 30s, 40s right now that are kind of making up the majority of the workforce now. If you can tailor it to us in a way that's more entertaining and not just like a funnier video of somebody compromising, you know, post-it notes all over their computer or something, if you actually make it some sort of... Engaging. It's engaging. You've got to be involved in a process. We're in an interactive age. People want to be interactive in the middle of this. And And if you can do that, it makes it easier to retain it as well. But also just making 
aware stuff like I think that every business at all sizes should understand what their biggest cybersecurity risks are, and they should be broadcasting regular information to their users about that. I mean, even if it's something simple as here's our security tip of the week, but find a way to make sure that everybody's actually engaging with that and reading it. Mm -hmm. Do something to kind of follow up on that. But yeah, education is absolutely going to be critical without us doing draconian things like huge restrictions of privilege and huge restrictions of access. That's the only other way we can do it as long as users have a lot of power. You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. For more information on keeping yourself, your family, and your company protected against cyber threats, check out the Resilience Cybersecurity and Data Privacy blog. If you're enjoying this podcast, please like and subscribe using any of your favorite podcast platforms. Also, please share this podcast with anyone you think would find it helpful or useful. We rely on listeners like you to help get the word out about this show, and we appreciate the support. Now, time for some more cybersecurity. I agree with you that the draconian restrictions of access, you start rising to the level where you make things so inconvenient that it is... You can't do business. Yeah. Now it's no longer... The negative effect it has on your ability to actually do your businesses is catastrophic beyond the benefits you gain from cybersecurity. But still, a significant restriction in access, especially... I mean, you and I have both campaigned very strong to avoid punitive responses to screwing up cybersecurity tests because it's not a good motivator. Making people afraid of losing losing their jobs if they accidentally click on the wrong spear phishing email is simply going to make people over-report rather than actually make them more willing to look for spear phishing stuff. But is is are any of those, do you think, really going to be able to prevent generative AI from being as big a threat as it is now? I mean, I think the possibility exists. So just alone, like part of the, the fact that businesses are approaching all this independently and are trying to take on the world by themselves with all these different incidents, the bad guys are all working together. I, yeah. I can't say it loud enough and I can't say it strongly enough. The bad guys are forming communities and they are doing that and they're banding together to come after these companies. What I will tell you is it may seem like there's millions of hackers all over the world. There's not. This is not that large of a number of people that are doing this. They're just having large impacts because they're banding together and there's really little retribution that can be enacted upon them for what they're doing. You tear down their systems, they go stand up some new ones somewhere else. And like our Mm -hmm. law enforcement authorities can't physically go after them. They're usually in non-extradition areas. So what do we do? Which is probably another question of why we have elections. And for some odd reason, one of the few things that we talk about is, can we start maybe including in this foreign relations discussion, cybersecurity cooperation with those countries that aren't necessarily on our Christmas card list? Yeah, I think that a lot of those though, like I don't want to say this doesn't happen in the US. I don't hear about it a lot, but that doesn't mean that it's not here either. But I think a lot a lot of those countries turn a blind eye to a lot of that because of the fact that they definitely don't want to send us Christmas cards and they definitely don't care when bad stuff befalls us. And if there's going to be some little, uh, you know, basement level hacker with a hoodie on that's going to disrupt a bunch of foreign businesses in a country you don't like, that's usually not a bad thing for most of those governments. Why would they want to cooperate on doing things like that? If anything, it takes a lot of pressure off of them when they go do things because it starts to muddy and make the waters murky and it really helps them hide the stuff that they do because the other stuff is brought front and center. Nobody's talking in the news about what's being hacked at the government, what kind of like DOD information gets stolen here and there. What they're talking about is MGM because a whole bunch of people couldn't use the slot machines and they couldn't get back into their hotel room. So 
like the money is there. So they're chasing the bad guys, the few ones that are really public, really loud, and everybody's ignoring all the state level actors because the, all the big APTs are sitting quietly in the background, letting the FBI and everybody chase all that chaos while they're now given basically all of the free reign to do what they want with less resistance in the way. Well, I think the potential international cooperation and the carrots and the sticks that could be used is probably meet for another episode. Anything else you want to talk about about the uh, generative AI in ransomware? Yeah, I mean, I think that the big thing here is that if businesses could just come together and start to work together in coalitions to actually to make some progress in this area, these hackers are very few. These businesses are very large. They've got some of the world's best people in these industries working for them. They've got far more capital available to them than the hackers do. The fact that they haven't banded together and tried to push back a little bit is kind of almost concerning to me because you have to be careful about how you go about pushing back. But even if pushing back is building a huge internet iron wall of cybersecurity systems together that sit and help us protect not just your own business and your own interests, Mm. but the whole of the net, that's an investment to me that businesses could make. They could make a lot of headway really quickly. And let's be honest, open AI and the generative AI systems are only going to, you only have to dance around the verbiage and stuff like that until somebody creates one more like a worm GPT or something where they can just go straight up and just make malicious requests directly to the large language models. Most of that stuff is all open source. I mean, open AI is open AI because they're willing to share. And so those large language models eventually will get abused when people put malicious AI layers on top Mm -hmm. of them. And so it's just a matter of time. But at the same point in time, if you build malicious AI models on top of there, we can build counter malicious AI models as well. Nobody's started really doing it as far as I've heard yet, but I don't know why somebody can't. And I don't know why we can't make a predictive AI that's going to start predicting all the stuff that's coming out from like a worm GPT and stuff and start getting us one step ahead of them getting one step ahead of us. I mean, it's it's a, a game of leapfrogging. We need to stop just making and commercializing these technologies. And we need to start using them the same way that the bad actors are, just in reverse and start setting up our defenses that way. I think there's a lot of opportunity there for us to level this playing field. The problem is, is the money's in the wrong spot, the effort's in the wrong spot. And because of it, we're going to get leapfrogged again. And yep. it's unfortunate, but I think at some point in time, somebody will wake up and go, hey, maybe this is going to be a great investment. You know what? Somebody will then find a way to monetize it. And at that point, then we've got something. But we need to get past those two couple big hurdles first because people don't want to throw capital into something if they don't see a return. And sometimes the return needs to and be- a short return, yeah. Maybe what we need to market the return as is, hey, guess what? You guys are going to stand to lose X billions again next year. This right here is not a return as in you're going to make more. It's that you're going to lose a hell of a lot less. And to me, if you sell it to the right people, cutting your losses is very much the same as adding additional profits to most businesses. It's the same impact to the bottom line, the same direction. I'm going to throw this out there right now that if anyone is looking to invest, we are at least willing to talk about your investment till the end of time if you uh, come and throw it our way. <laughs> yes, I, 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 I do like money. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those interesting necessities to live now. That's all the time we have here for this week's episode of Fearless Paranoia. We hope you've enjoyed it. And if you've gotten something positive out of it, you've learned something, please go ahead and share this episode with anyone else that you believe might be able to gain some benefit from it. Don't forget to go back and check out our previous episodes on generative AI. We cover the positives, the negatives, and the uses of generative AI. Also, go back and take a listen to some of our earlier episodes about ransomware to understand how this type of hack is actually a multi-part and multi 
by person attack and why it is so frequently successful. You can go ahead and subscribe to this podcast on any of your favorite podcasting platforms, apps, or systems. You can also sign up to receive new episodes by email at fearlessparanoia.com. You can also get additional information on the sources for this episode and other tools that you can get to help you out at fearlessparanoia.com or resiliencecybersecurity.com. For Fearless Paranoia, I'm Brian. And I'm Ryan. And we'll see you next time. 